This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions. Send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to pubweeklyradio, that's pubwklyradio on Twitter. Today we'll talk with Brandon Stanton about his amazing photo project, Humans of New York. Then PW co-editorial director Jim Milliot will tell us about the results of PW's annual salary survey. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So, should we start with fiction or nonfiction? We this can week? totally start with fiction. Um, I don't know if you remember our friend John Sanford, who was a guest on our radio show, but his newest book is out, Stormfront. Um, right. Um, this ties into the series that we had interviewed him about. It uh, features Virgil Flowers. It's uh, the seventh book about him. It's a spin-off character from Sanford's popular thriller series. And um, in this particular one, he's tracking down a, a stone that was an inscribed stone that was stolen from an archaeological dig in Israel. Mm. Um, I love how whenever I talk about thrillers, the, the sirens start up outside our windows. It's somehow appropriate. <laughs> it's the joys of recording from our <laughs> New York office. Um, and uh, we gave this book a starred review. Uh, we say, despite the bloodthirsty fanaticism that the participants display, the quest for the stone provides many opportunities for cross-cultural verbal confusion and violent slapstick. So Virgil mainly tries to stop the commotion before any Anyone gets seriously hurt, and unusually good-natured intrigue distinguishes this outing. Oh, fantastic. So that's on our fiction list at number three of the fiction hardcover list. Right. Number five is Debbie Maycomber's Starry Night. Uh, mm-hmm. We've been talking about Christmas romances. See, you know, now the sirens are much less appropriate. Yeah, exactly. It's Christmas. <laughs> it's Debbie. It's Debbie. Um, <laughs> so Starry Night is uh, her, her Christmas romance. Um, we also gave this a starred review appropriately for Starry Night. Um, it is a tender tale of impractical love. Uh, it's about a newspaper reporter who's in Chicago and stuck covering society events, and she's sick of it, basically. She wants to prove that she's a real journalist. So, sure. Yeah, so she hops on a plane to Alaska. That's what you do when you want to prove yourself. Mm. Um, she wants to track down Finn Dalton, who's a best-selling author who uh, really guards his privacy very closely. Um, he hates reporters, he distrusts romance, and he you know, resents women, and therefore, clearly, he's the perfect person for her to talk right, to, because sure. if she can get an interview with him, then she's proven her chops. Um, and so he refuses to talk with Carrie when she arrives, but um, soon uh, he slips a couple times and shows his sensitive mm. side. Um, and what's interesting about this is that Carrie goes home. She goes back to Chicago. And so part of the novel is about long-distance romance, um, about the two of them trying to bridge that distance with email and text messages um, while working through their, their separate concerns. Uh, our review says the happy ending for them is a delicious 
this Christmas miracle that is mm. well worth waiting for. Oh, fantastic. Great. So that's number five on our trade fiction list. And then uh, after that, at number six, we have Stuart Woods' Doing a Hard Time. Um, this is his 27th novel in the Stone Barrington series. These are thrillers. That, right. Uh, you know, if, if this is the sort of thing you like, then you'll like it. And uh, you know, the the main character is uh, again Stone Barrington, who's wealthy, handsome, and suave. Um, but here he has to show his paternal side, as his son and his son's girlfriend uh, are are involved in working on a film, uh, and uh, he has to take care of them while fighting off uh, some Russian assassins. Mm. So he displays a father's ruthless streak to protect Peter, while Faye brings a welcome, gritty edge to this crowd-pleasing series. Oh, wonderful. Next up on the fiction list, we've got quite a few new new titles this week. At number eight is Dave Eggers' The Circle. This is another starred review. Uh, we call it a stunning work of terrifying plausibility, a cautionary tale of subversive power mm. in the digital age that is suavely packaged as a Silicon Valley social satire. Though it's set in the near future and it examines the inner workings of The Circle, an internet company that is both the spiritual and literal successor to Facebook, Google, Twitter, and more, is seen through the eyes of May Holland, a new hire who starts in customer service. I don't know how in touch you are with the, the tech world, but it, there have been some interesting backlash against this book from women who work in tech who basically say, you know, who's this guy trying to tell our stories? He's he's set this in the near future, but it's really about now. Really? And, um, and, and that he's he's getting all this press and all this mm-hmm. attention for telling the story of a, of a hypothetical woman working in the tech industry, but there are all these real women in tech right now whose voices aren't being heard I, I, I think that's an interesting bit of cultural context for the book but of course controversy doesn't hurt sales no definitely not so there he is on our uh, on our bestseller list and finally I wanted to mention Chuck Palahniuk's Doomed mm-hmm. at number 13 no stranger uh, to the bestseller list no absolutely not a lot of people have been waiting for this book however we call it a less than triumphant return to a satiric hell uh, it, it offers a new installment in the story of Madison Spencer, who uh, was the uh, snide, overweight, 13-year-old heroine of Damned. She happens to be dead. Mm. So this is a great right. Halloween book. Um, and uh, when a Halloween revenge prank on some of her living tormentors goes wrong, uh, Satan tells her that she has to go roam the earth, haunting the places and people she knew. Uh, and we say, while Planet fans will surely be pleased, the book reads like a YA novel from hell, whose threadbare premise only sporadically entertains ouch that's kind of tough but obviously didn't keep it off the bestseller list no so. that, that's <laughs> absolutely not uh, you know the at the heart of the rollicking story is a girl's relationship with her parents but Polaniak embroiders the tale with poop jokes and gratuitous vulgarity mm. with scant comedic value <laughs> wow. our reviewer really was not keen on this particular right. book but it that, yeah as he said it's not going to stop his fans from scooping it up yeah, definitely not. And, well, uh, turning a little bit to um, nonfiction, we, uh, the two books I want to talk about are uh, books that have come out of tragedies. And because mm. they are memoirs, fortunately, those who uh, suffer the tragedy are, are alive, made it alive to tell about it. So the first one is I Am Malala, the girl who stood up for education who was shot by the Taliban. And this is about uh, Malala, who is 15 years old in the Swat Valley in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And she was uh, uh, fighting over her right 
and the right of girls to an education. She was shot point blank in the head, uh, riding a bus home from school, uh, survived. And uh, this year came out with this this memoir, and she's the youngest nominee ever for the uh, Nobel uh, Peace Prize. So that's at number two. Uh, at number three, uh, my story. This is the Elizabeth Smart story. Uh, this is Elizabeth Smart, uh, who came from a close-knit Mormon family who was abducted from her Salt Lake City bedroom. And uh, this book has been a long-awaited uh, story. Um, and uh, it's 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 in at number three right now. All right. Well, those sound um, like like somber reads. Yes, though in in the spirit of uh, told from a survivor who have stories to tell, especially in I am Malala who mm-hmm. is speaking out and still really she's on an the incredible circuit. young yeah, woman. Exactly, exactly. And and Elizabeth Smart, who's I mean her, survived uh, you know years of being abducted, and here she is telling the story. Um, so very good for for them. All right. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, we'll talk with Brandon Stanton about how a camera and a weekend trip turned into a blog and a book. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Brandon Stanton on the line. He's the creator of Humans of New York, a project to document New York City's incredible variety of inhabitants. Thanks so much for joining us, Brandon. Yeah, thank you for having me. I have to start from the beginning. Before you were a photographer, you were a bond trader. That's quite a leap. What what led you to the career change? Well, it is quite a leap. You know, I bought a a camera um, as a way of kind of relieving stress on the weekends while I was working in Chicago. And not too long after I bought the camera, things kind of really started to go downhill at, at, you know, at work. And I kind of, I ended up losing my job and I kind of woke up and realized that, you know, I've been spending so much of the previous three years just focusing on markets and worrying about how to keep my job that suddenly, you know, all these thoughts and all this mind energy that I had that I was putting in that direction was suddenly freed up to put anywhere that I wanted to. So the first question I asked myself is, what do I enjoy doing? And at the time, I was enjoying photography. So I said, I'm going to take a few months off. I'm going to travel around. I'm going to photograph. And I'm going to see where that leads. And it's led to Humans of New York. So you you were in Chicago at the time. What brought you to New York City? You know, I was planning on going all around the country and just kind of doing street photography in different cities. And I went to Pittsburgh, then I went to Philadelphia. And in that time when I was kind of traveling, I started to gravitate towards pictures of people. You know, not only candid photos, but even beyond that, photos were actually stopped people on the street got their permission for the photo and took sort of an intimate portrait of them on the street. And when I got into New York, I was starting to specialize more and more on these photos. And there was just such a density and diversity of people in New York that I thought, you know, this type of photography that I've naturally, you know, fell into is perfectly suited for this city. And I think I can make a really cool blog doing this. So what made you decide to put these photos on a blog? How did that come about? Well, you know, at first, I didn't really know anything about blogs. I've been trading for three years, so I wasn't really up to date on social media or anything. And my initial goal was I was going to move to New York, and I was going to take 10,000 portraits and plot them on a map of the city. And then 
I was going to, you know, allow it so anybody could go to that map and click on any neighborhood in New York and kind of scroll through the faces of the people that live there. So the first few months in New York City were spent, like, gathering material for that map. And then just kind of as an afterthought, I started peeling off two or three of these portraits every single day and posting them on social media, just kind of in a daily content blog format. And suddenly that was the part of the, the, the project that really started to take off. Instead of coming to see this huge collection of photos I had, a bunch of people started coming every single day to my social media sites just to see the latest photo that I put up every single day. So the transformation from a project to a blog was really kind of an organic one. And, I mean, New York City is huge. And, you know, coming from Chicago, you, you, you're new to this city. How did you go about finding neighborhoods or, uh, you know, people to photograph? Honestly, I just walked. I mean, I blew through about four pairs of shoes probably in about eight months. I honestly, you know, those first, those first months, maybe first year, I was probably walking like eight to 10 miles a day. And so what is that? You know, 3,650 miles in the first year alone. So, I mean, really just the finding these people, finding these moments was just the result of, you know, thousands of miles of walking and just a lot of footwork. And what was it like photographing all these humans? What were your encounters with them like? Uh, you know, it, it honestly progressed. I, I I ditched candid photography pretty early. You know, I found if you really want to upset somebody, get caught taking a picture of them without their permission. Mm. So after I had, you know, a few kind of unpleasant encounters there, I said, you know what, I'm going to stick to these portraits where I actually asked for permission. And, you know, that's what I thought I was doing that was kind of the most unique anyway. And ever since I started doing that, you know, there's been some rude brush-offs, but nobody's been openly hostile. Uh, and then, you know, somewhere along the way, I started having these conversations with these people, and that's what the blog has become now. I don't even really call it a photography blog anymore. It's a collection of stories about people using images and words. So not only do I put up the photographs, but I also put anecdotes and stories from the person's life. I'm a little surprised that you've never really gotten a, a brush off because I feel like, you know, a guy wandering around the streets. Oh, no, I've got with a, a camera. I haven't been overtly threatened. Oh, ever. I see. You know, people, the worst that could happen is somebody's going to be rude or somebody's going to be really flippant. Uh, you know, I haven't really had anybody threaten to attack me just because I asked to take their photo. Right. Now, back when I was taking candid photos without asking, if somebody up and they saw me taking a picture of them, then they could get very angry. Mm -hmm. And you've spent some time documenting urban homelessness specifically. Um, what did you take away from that? Now, I wouldn't say that I was documenting urban homelessness specifically. Um, I was in the, pro in, you know, in the process of gathering this huge cross-section of humanity on the streets of New York. Naturally, you know, there were some homeless people involved. And honestly, I don't separate my process of talking to homeless people with then you know with anything you know anything else you know any any other person i don't sit down and specifically ask them about homelessness or what their economic situations like or you know i ask them the same questions i ask anybody else what was the happiest moment of your life you know what was the saddest moment of your life like what, where are you trying to go you know so i really don't you know i really don't classify any demographic of people as you know a certain portion of the photos it's just kind of all involved in the blog 
Well, what were some of the most interesting people you photographed? Did you have any personal favorites? Uh, you know, I, it's, I don't really have favorites, but, you know, I've gotten asked that question enough that, you know, I thought of an answer. Uh, this is, a you know, a time where a photo that really moved me. I remember I was in Midtown and it was pouring down rain. And this woman came walking towards me. She was about 80 years old and she had this bright umbrella and it was starting to rain really hard and I didn't have an umbrella. And I walked up to her and I asked for a photo and she said, yeah. So I stepped back and I took a full body picture of her. Then I got under the umbrella with her and it was just pouring down rain and just me and this 80 year old woman under the umbrella. And I asked her, if you were to give one piece of advice to a large group of people, what would that advice be? And she had the voice of like the narrator from the Titanic. It was very epic. And she said, you know, I'll tell you what my husband told me when he was dying. She said, Mo, how am I going to live without you? And he told me, take the love you have for me and spread it around. And just that quote mixed with the rain mixed with everything was just very emotional i actually said goodbye and i turned the corner i even started crying a little bit yeah i can oh, i can hear lovely. that in your voice yeah it's pretty incredible yeah so you know that one always kind of sticks with me but honestly that i've just heard so many stories that i think really the the interesting aspect of humans of new york is in the breadth of it it's in it's in the vastness of it and you know isolating any individual story as being more impactful than any other is something that I have a very hard time doing. Is it hard going up to people and asking them these very personal questions without an introduction? I know a lot of shy folks who have trouble saying hello to someone even if they're introduced by a friend. So the idea of spending you know, every single day walking 10 miles and talking to strangers, is that's pretty far out of most people's experiences. I mean, the short answer is yes, it is very hard. Um, you know, it's, it's something that I don't view as being hard anymore because I've just... I've re- repeated the process so many times, thousands upon thousands of times, that I, I'm kind of immune to the emotional aspect of it. But when I first started, I remember, you know, I'd, I'd really kind of get revved up to go out one day and I'd go up, you know, to certain neighborhood and I'd get out and I nervously approach three people. Two of them would tell me to, you know, bug off and then, you know, the third one would cuss me out. And I would just be so emotionally, you know, beaten down that I would just go home and just lay on the couch for the rest of the day, you know, like, because at that time I didn't have, I didn't have any precedent, you know, right. it was just me going up approaching people. So when, when I'd have a negative reaction, I would internalize it and I would say, you know what, maybe I am being weird. Maybe I'm being rude. Maybe what I'm doing is wrong. And I would internalize that, and it was very hard. But now that I've done 10,000 portraits and and asked so many people, I know that 95% of people are very receptive to having an interaction on the street. So when someone's rude to me, I don't internalize it anymore. I say, you know what, that's that person, and that has nothing to do with what I'm doing. So, so what pushed you to keep doing that even during those hard times? Just obsession, just pure obsession. Um, I was so hooked on photography back then. You know, I tend to get very, very, very passionate about things. I remember when I and I taught myself to play piano, I would play for eight hours a day until my fingers were just about to fall off. Um, and, you know, it, that is the obsession and the passion of obviously, you know, the passion's still there, but, you know, the obsession has kind of faded into discipline and devotion now. But, you know, those first months when I really had no fans following the page, I had no money, you know, my friends and my family kind of thought the idea was crazy. What drew me there was just 
just pure obsession and just the delight of finding a good picture, the delight of taking photos. It felt like a treasure hunt all day long. And, uh, you know, that's what really got me over the hump. And then, so here you are a couple of years out. Um, we hear last week you, you did a signing at BNN and, and the line was out the door. I mean, wrapped around the block. Did you ever expect this kind of reaction to your book? Um, well, we've been watching those pre-order numbers rack up for a long time, so we knew it was going to be monstrous. Um, as far as that particular signing, you know, I never, I never, you know, I've, I've always encountered my fans one at a time on the street. You know, I've never announced I'm going to be here and then everybody come. And, you know, Barnes, I went and checked at Barnes & Noble, you know, that morning. I was like, hey, are you guys ready? They're like, oh, we're expecting it to be huge. We've got 700 books stacked up in the basement. It's going to be giant. Those books were gone so fast. Um, so, you know, the fact that so many people would just show up was, was very overwhelming. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I can probably say it was just the best night of my life. You know, all that work. And all that effort and just to see all all the my fans and people who engage in the site just get you know, I get emotional even thinking about it, just gathered in one place and just to kind of walk out and it just felt like such a culmination, such a culmination of the risk I took to move to New York. All those months, you know, year where I was just walking the streets every day taking these photos with not much to show for it. And so yeah, you know, just the whole the whole environment around this book and the experience has just really been overwhelming and so validating and just so special to me. Now, with all of those photographs available for free on your site, why do you think people are paying for the book? I mean, this is a question that comes up a lot in publishing these days, right. print versus digital and free versus pay. Right. You know, well, there's something about having a very tangible, curated you know, um, curation of the work. You know, I think that we put so much effort into the design to add value on top of the content that, you know, the book in itself adds a layer of value. It adds an artistic presentation. The book is just absolutely beautiful. On top of that, there's just a lot of emotion in the community that follows the blog. There's a lot of love, a lot of dedication, a lot, a lot of loyalty. And so, you know, with the people that follow the blog, I think there's a desire, one, to support it, and two, to own a piece of it. Mm -hmm. And beyond the blog, it's new to everybody who hasn't seen it. Well, is uh, Humans of Chicago up next, or <laughs> well, document done, New York forever and ever? Well, you know, I've done a lot of work in Chicago before I even started, because, I mean, that's where I got, I got a lot of portraits in, uh, you know, Chicago. Um, I do plan on traveling. It will always be Humans of New York. I mean, that is my project. That's my brand name. Um, but, you know, I do plan on taking a week here, taking two weeks here. I went to Iran in December, uh, which was a really amazing experience and did street portraits there. So, you know, I do plan on traveling and taking it on the road, but it will always be anchored in New York. And I'm going to ask you the same question you asked that, uh, that old woman, if you have one piece of advice to give to our listeners, one thing that you've learned from doing all these portraits, what, what would that be? What I always say is don't wait for perfect. And, you know, it's so important, you know, and I always tell when I speak at high schools, I always emphasize that Humans of New York was not a fully formed idea that I executed. Humans of New York was a series of like thousands of tiny evolutions that came out of just photographing all day long, every day. So I always say, don't wait until you have the perfect idea to begin working. Just concentrate on the work and just evolve as you go along. 
And that is the best way to accomplish a huge task and to create something great. Well, it sounds wonderful. It's a great piece of advice. We've been talking with Brandon Staten. You can find his book, Humans of New York, in stores right now. Brandon, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW co-editorial director Jim Milliot will tell us about the results of PW's annual salary survey. So stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, PW co-editorial director Jim Milliot will tell us about the results of PW's annual salary survey, which were published in our October 7th issue. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. Hello, Mark. Good Hello. to be with Hello. you again. Thanks for coming on again. Uh, my pleasure. So this is our first survey in three years. Um, obviously, publishing has changed quite a lot since since 2010. So what's, what's changed and what's the same? Uh, well, that was one of the reasons we wanted to do it, because we had had a bit of a gap. And as you said, a lot has happened. Um, and the salary survey also looks at the, the job situation, too. So starting with uh, what's the same... Uh, Raises are not great. Uh, the average raise in 2012 was 2.8%. Ouch. Uh, well, that's actually better than, uh, I believe it was 2.3% the last time we did it in 2009 mm-hmm. or 2009. So a little bit of an increase, but not a lot. Back before the recession, uh, we were seeing annual raises about 4 and 5%. Oh. So I guess you could look at it either half or half empty. The raises are a little better than they were, but not as good as they once were. Yeah, and and that's more or less keeping cost cost of living pace. But, right, just about. But yeah, but not yeah. much more than that. Not much more. No, no. And uh, what about? I, I mean, as far as you know, we 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 focused before on on gender. Is there been a gender gap in, in <laughs> that we can tell in the survey? There's big gender gaps across the board. Uh, all right. So the number that jumps out at everybody is the. Uh, average pay for men and women. The average uh, annual salary for a man is 85000 and for women it's 56000 But if you look at job for job, they're, they're much closer. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this roughly $30,000 gap is because um, more men work in management mm-hmm. uh, and they have much longer uh, careers. So I think it's about 40% of the men, or 40% of people in management are men, which is the highest percentage of any of the, um, the categories we look at, which would include sales and marketing, editorial, and production. And like, again, they make the most money, and that's mm-hmm. where the most men right, are. Right. And the average uh, career for a man who responded to the survey was about 17 years, compared to about nine for women. Oh, so, wow. so you get that that uh, those two factors involved and that, that goes a long way towards explaining why this again this is just an average of sure. women yeah. and everything uh, and another factor is that the overwhelming <laughs> number of uh, employees with three years or less experience are women mm-hmm. so they're obviously the entry level jobs earning the less this year I think the number was 82% of people with uh, experience under three years were women. Wow. The last time we did it, it was 85%. Wow. So, um, so meaning more women are coming into publishing than men. 
Way, way more. Yeah. When we did a uh, talk at this a um, few weeks ago with Rosemont College, and they said their whole class uh, was women mm-hmm. of uh, graduate students. Wow. And, and, and you see it wherever you go. If you go to NYU, uh, sure. Pace, any of the ones, you look at the, uh, the publishing classes, and it's heavily, heavily women. Right. So does that mean like maybe 10 years from now we might see the gender gap narrowing as the older men retire and the younger women have moved into management positions? That's definitely possible. Again, I don't have concrete examples here, but sure. I, I've looked at it. And if you look at a publisher, for instance, let's say, and if it's a man or a woman, the, the, uh, the numbers are pretty similar. And there are women obviously moving up in the ranks. Uh, Carol already has been CEO of... Uh, Simon and Schuster for you know four or five years now, um, and there's others. So uh, I think we'll see it um, even up over time, unless all of a sudden it's 90% women in the entry level jobs. It's hard to over- overcome those $25,000 positions. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the survey was more than just New York City publishing. We did it across the uh, country. What, what did we find there? Absolutely. Well. Uh, a little bit surprising, of course, obviously, in terms of, you know, the concentration of publishing is in New York and New England and in the East Coast. But the salaries were just a little bit higher here than in some of the other parts and then Midwest and the South and on the West Coast. Not, not, not nothing that really would, I think, jump out at you. But one of the things we wanted to focus on, though, this year was seeing what the impact of... Uh, digital publishing had been on hiring practices. So we did see, for instance, that uh, 56% of the people who responded say that they have received some sort of uh, guidelines in what they should be doing with social media uh, on the, uh, with the company. I mean, not, not their own Twitter feeds or Facebook, but um, you know what they should be doing for the, right. uh, for the, 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 the publishers. And then, um, so over 50%, I think, had said that um, their company had hired somebody specifically for um, for some sort of digital job, and I, and the two biggest areas in that were in management and production. Mm-hmm. And we're also asking about um, purchasing self-published books and publishing them in a more traditional way, right? Absolutely. We we asked uh, had your company uh, bought a self-published book in the last year. And the overall response rate was uh, 52%. But if you look as we looked at everybody, trade, professional, college. But if you looked at just the trade houses, uh, that number went up to 63%. Wow. And if you looked at it by in terms of size of house, the bigger the house, the more likely they were to have bought a self-published book. Well, they're the ones who can afford to take chances, maybe. Right. Uh, that's probably that's a good point. Um, I would say that's a good reason. Why do you have E.L. James? You can pay for the next E.L. James. That's right. what people are paying for. Absolutely. Um, and let's talk a little bit about the the uh, the more subjective parts of this. How about people feeling secure in their jobs and their opinions on the industry and all of those sorts of opinion questions? Yeah. Uh, yeah given the, um, you know, all the turmoil, if you will, in the industry the last few years and all the disruption talk and all of that, the people were feeling better than they were at least during the depths of the recession. So I don't know if that's cold comfort or not, but um, they were—they seem to be have been more worried about what the recession was doing to the uh, the industry than what they what digital publishing has been doing. Um, 
there was a fair number, uh, the majority of people were felt secure in their jobs um, and a little higher than they did uh, three years ago. And the most surprising thing was their confidence level in the future of publishing. I think it was almost like 90% mm. of people who responded said they felt that you know, book publishing's future was secure, at least for the last, for the next uh, five years or so. Which again, given all the you and cry and doom and gloom, uh, was a bit of a surprise. Secure for five years sounds blissful. <laughs> 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 that's, that's wonderfully optimistic. I, we really have to think in these very short chunks of time now. You can't, you can't predict 20 or 30 years out. Oh, you can't predict at all. Not um, at all. I was just talking to somebody the other day who said trying to do a projection over three years is crazy. And even trying to do three years is mm -hmm. taking your life in your hands. That, yeah, that's great that people, you know, even given the, the sort of impossible number of five years. I mean, if we think back to 2008, it seems like a really long time ago. Yeah. And when you look back at 2008, 2009, I mean, it was the recession and it was the beginning of the digital revolution, if you will. So you put those two together and nobody knew what was going to happen. Right. And then the, the quick uptick in the ebook sales and where was that going to lead? And I, I think it does certainly reflect that the new survey here that there's certainly a settling down of of the digital and print and that sort of an equilibrium at least at least for the rest of this year. Yeah. Now now Jim, you as you said, you've you've given talks, you've spoken to a lot of uh publishing programs, publishing schools. Have you found that there is still an, an interest in entering the book publishing world? I mean, is it still competitive um, despite the low uh, entry level salaries? Yeah, there is. Uh, I don't know if word has filtered down to uh, younger people about the death of publishing or they haven't heard it. <laughs> um, but they also come in, I think, <laughs> you know, with no baggage, no legacies, if you will. Right. Um, you know, I, I think are willing to embrace, you know, whatever, whatever new techniques are out there. Um, and let's face it, if you like to work with the written word, be it books or printed books or digital books, it's still the place to be. Sure. And if, if I could just ask, what was, I, I mean, you've been doing this with exception of the last three years when we haven't mm -hmm. had it, but for years and years, what, uh, over the time, what is, has there been anything that's been most surprising for you when you get these figures, when they start rolling in? Or this year, was there anything that was surprising? Well, most surprising, I think, was the confidence level, for sure. sure. I mean, I remember the first one we did many years ago. It really was the poultry salary level. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, people had always heard it, but um, when we were sort of able to document it, I mean, how low, especially outside the management field. I mean, managers do pretty well. Um, but in editorial sales. By managers, you mean publishers? Publisher, well, presidents, you know, yeah. CEOs on the management side and yeah. stuff. Um, right. Yeah, to find the corporate, the corporate, right. the, the black suits. Right, you know? right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it really, and, and you know, and it really, it really hasn't got much better. Yeah. But you know, having said all that, it does attract, uh, well, it attracts a very educated workforce. I mean, sure. the numbers are astounding. I think all but 5% have a, have a college education, I think, Within that, about 50% of people have, have gone to graduate school or have graduate degrees. Wow. wow. And, th and they're paying their loans up? <laughs> <laughs> Somehow. Oh, that's a high scratcher. <laughs> well, Jim, thanks so much for this uh, roundup, for talking to us about this. It's been great having you on again. Sure. Anytime.
And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pubwklyradio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 